But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. From the second epistle to the Corinthians, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. There is a wedding on the horizon. Invitations have been sent out. Indeed, they continue to go out. It is the one true wedding because it is the one true marriage. Every other marriage shares in its truth merely as a shadow shares in its source. It is, of course, the marriage of Christ and his church but it is also the marriage of heaven with earth. Growing up, I missed this union entirely as the goal towards which all the cosmos were aimed. I was blind to its beauty. It was simply heaven for us that we wanted. Sweet release, for the world was too sunken in sin. It was wrecked beyond rescue. And so heaven, the sweet release, either by death or by rapture, was what I was taught to long for. An escape from this world to a completely different place. As I grew older and my theological education broadened, I began to reverse this paradigm. Indeed, I overcorrected. Because if God could restore this broken world, I thought, then perhaps heaven was completely unnecessary. I made the mistake of thinking that because my ideas about heaven were silly and trite, that the very idea of heaven was ridiculous. Of course, the fault, dear friends, did not lie in the heavens, but in me. We are so prone to either be drawn to a world that is right in front of us or be consumed with that which lies beyond, that we miss the marriage feast that the scripture foretells entirely. We forego the consummation. But that is what the scriptures point us to, this marriage of heaven and earth. Of course, for a marriage, we must first understand that there is a difference between the two. Heaven is not earth. That is why one of the many reasons for the Christian, a wedding necessitates a bride and a groom, a man and a woman. See, it is this separateness that makes way for a glorious synthesis. And of course, sacrifice is going to be required because of this difference. Each must make room for the other. Your plans for the future once you get engaged, you realize you're going to have to change. Your routines are going to have to be reshuffled. Your money is going to have to be reallocated. It is a pain. It is a pain. But it is a pain that paves the path to joy. When I proposed to Catherine, I, uh, I was rather strapped for cash at the time. Somehow being a, a bartender during the lunch shift at a local pub just didn't really uh, make all the ends meet the way I would have wanted them to. But I had, I had savings. Actually, my grandfather had, had given me savings, and they 
let me get through my undergraduate education relatively unscathed. So I took all that I had left after getting my degree and I went and bought the ring. In many ways, it felt like I was giving away everything I had to make this happen. But somehow that felt right. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, that's where we'll be spending time today. In chapter 11, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I betrothed you to one bridegroom. Paul wants to remind the Corinthians not only of Christ's suffering, not only of Christ giving his whole self away so that he could gain the Corinthians and indeed all of his church. Paul wants to remind them even of the suffering, of the pains he himself has undertaken to prepare these Corinthians to meet their beloved. And so he tells them of his toils, of his strife, of his many trials, of his sickness. He goes down this laundry list of terrible things that have happened to him for the sake of the Corinthians and for the sake of the gospel. He is giving them this resume of misery because they have recently become captivated by a group of people who refer to themselves or sometimes referred to as the super apostles. This sort of cadre of charismatic virtuosos who have burst onto the scene with charming voices and impressive curriculum vitae. So the Corinthians are fascinated with this group. And so it goes so far that Paul, in chapter 3 of uh, 2 Corinthians verse 1, he says, do we need a letter of recommendation to send to you? Should I be sending you my letter of recommendation? I, who founded the church in Corinth, do you need me to send my resume? Do you need to see my credentials? But of course, then he shows them how foolish they are. If you have, if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 3. How foolish they are to want Paul to send a letter of recommendation. For he says to them, He says that you are to be the letter of recommendation to the world, written through Christ and the Spirit. You are supposed to be the letter of recommendation to the world. But they've settled for less. They have newfound standards and they need to make sure that Paul fits them. See, they, they want eloquence. They want expertise. They want someone with a good theological education. But what Paul wants them to understand is that none of those things prepare someone to, to proclaim the gospel. None of those things. It is not education. It is not expertise. It is not eloquence. It is an encounter with Christ alone that prepares you to tell the world of this good news. And this is where the truth of the man behind these letters, St. Paul, comes crashing down into collision with the Paul I grew up hearing about. 
Blessed Evelyn Underhill in her book, The Mystics of the Church writes, we must correct the view which sees Paul mainly as a theologian and an organizer by that which recognizes in him the great contemplative. Many of his sayings, which are supposed by academic critics to be statements of doctrine, are often desperate attempts to describe his own experience. Is Paul the mystic who writes in, in chapter 1, 21 and 22, that God establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us and has put his seal on us and he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, the wedding ring, the guarantee. Who also writes in chapter three, verse 18, that we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another from the Lord who is a spirit. Paul the mystic. Paul the spiritual contemplative. But of course, the super apostles are not shy about using spiritual language we find. They're, they're more than happy to tell of these, these stories of their ecstatic revelations. To tell about how, how they were caught up in these heavenly revelations and visions. But there's a difference. There's a difference. It's a small detail that if we miss, will distort the gospel entirely. See, the super apostles, they're boasters. See, they want to regale you with every single spiritual experience they've ever had. They want to build themselves up. They want to gather other people around them upon whose shoulders they can stand so that they promise when they reach the top of the wall, they'll turn around and pull everyone else up behind them. Or at the very least, tell them of the splendorous sights that they see. See, they're the best, the brightest, the most well-educated, the best communicators. See, they think that they can ascend to heaven to make way for us. Because for them, heaven is not different than earth. Indeed, heaven is just an extension of earth, a utopian paradise perhaps, prepared for the most fit people to attain it. And so they look at it the same way that they would look at a promotion. They approach it the same way they would approach a political election. Each of their achievements is another rung on their ladder to the stars. They rebuild the Tower of Babel in their hearts. And so Paul is drawn in to this boasting competition with people he considers to be wannabes and pretenders. And he knows that if he's going to just berate their accomplishments, that he's going to actually play into their game and give something up. It doesn't stop him from sort of saying, actually, no, their accomplishments really aren't that great compared to mine. It doesn't stop him from saying, are they servants of Christ? Okay, well then where are their scars and black eyes? I'd like to see their arrest record. It doesn't stop him from saying, are they children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham? Abraham, whose story, of course, begins in Genesis 12, one chapter after the fall of Babel. Abraham, who was chosen not by any sort of great great merit of his own, but purely through the gift of God's unmerited grace and favor. And then, at the very end of chapter 11, verse 33, 
Paul shows us that he's no wall climber. He's no ladder builder. He tells us at the time that he was in Damascus and there was a king who was looking for him and he was let down in a basket through a window down, to the wall, down from the wall to the floor. That's where Paul's best efforts lead him. But he says, I have seen heaven. Do you want to hear about it? Oh, I have seen heaven in chapter 12. I was caught up into paradise. I was plucked and put there through no accomplishment of my own. It's not much use talking about it, he says. I can hardly describe it. I can hardly wrap my own head around it. It's not going to really do you much good. I can't, I can't boast in that, he says. To capitalize on a journey to heaven is to miss the point of heaven entirely. Revelations are not resume builders. Surely you know this. Perhaps you've had spiritual experience, supernatural encounters. I admit, I've had things happen to me that I don't understand. But it doesn't do a lot of good usually to convey these things to others because it doesn't often build others up, which is what Paul always wants us to do. It's what he's always calling us to do. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, I don't care if you've learned how to speak angelese. If you don't have love in your hearts, you're worthless. Paul wants to say, if you've had a spiritual encounter, if you've had something supernatural happen to you, ponder it in your heart, hold it close. But don't go around talking about it all the time. Don't go around sucking all the air out of the room, seeking to puff yourself up. Let other people breathe. Then Paul goes on to tell us about the thorn in the flesh that he was given. Thorn's a good translation, but a stake would also, also work. Paul, in danger of wanting to float back to this paradise, is latched to the ground. Almost similar to when he encounters the risen Christ with his eyes and is struck blind immediately afterwards on the road to Damascus. But this is no angelic anchor. No, Paul tells us this is a messenger of Satan, a demonic tether. There's a lot of speculation about what this is. Could it be a sickness, a physical ailment? Could it be all the sufferings he mentioned? Could it be people who are oppressing him? We don't know, but we do know that Paul prays for release. He prays for release. And what does he get for his persistent knocking? An answer to be sure, but not the one that he wanted. It is Christ's voice. My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Grace, grace. The foundation of Paul's message to the world, indeed the foundation of the gospel. See, the super apostles want to talk about all their long list of qualifications, but Paul knows that there is nothing that qualifies him to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. He should be excluded by all rights. He is a rebel, he is a sinner, he is a persecutor of the church. It says, my grace, 
is sufficient for you, Paul. My power, Jesus says, is made perfect in weakness. In chapter 4, verse 7 of this letter, Paul told the Corinthians that we are cracked, earthy, thin vessels through which the light of Christ shines all the brighter because of, not in spite of, our weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness, made perfect. The word there is telos. It implies completion, wholeness. We often use it to describe the goal, the purpose to which something is wholly aimed. And in our weakness, Paul says, the power of Christ reaches its goal. In our frailty, it attains victory. Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that the same Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father was also crucified on a cross. His torture gave way to healing, his marring to restoration. He is crowned with glory, but he was also crowned with thorns. Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. But there's something else, and you have to forgive me, I'm going to go a little long, because this, this is so important to get. And if you don't know it, I hope you learn it today. And if you know it, I hope you're reminded of it. See, Paul doesn't just want us to remember that Christ did something through weakness and that his power was made perfect in weakness once. No, the call is to share in the suffering of Christ so that we might share in the glory of Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice that what I am suffering for you, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. I'm going to say that again. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in Christ's affliction. See, Christ, he suffered more than we can ever possibly imagine. And his work on the cross, oh, it's so glorious. It's enough to forgive every sin. It's enough to redeem us. But the gospel doesn't stop there. No, Paul says, you're invited to participate in this ongoing work. Christ was crowned with thorns to remind you that the thorns in your own life might have redemptive power for the whole earth. His suffering gives meaning to our suffering. Our life is proof that a wedding is coming not of an earth that will launch itself into that glorious paradise, but of a heavenly country which will come down and embrace the whole world. So what does that mean? Well, I think Paul would say, hey, do you want to go to heaven this week? Do you want to touch heaven this week? We'll stop obsessing over waiting for a supernatural encounter. And by all means, don't start boasting about how tall your ladder is. If you want to touch heaven this week, then lean into the place where you feel the most vulnerable. The weak spaces of your own life, of our world, that's where you're going to encounter Christ. Now, I do want to say that God values your talents and your skills, and I believe that I have seen God's beauty and goodness and truth 
through the meals many of you prepared for me, through, through sermons you've written, through, through service, through songs, through papers you've written. But Christ's power is not made perfect in our excellence. Christ's power is only made perfect. It only reaches its goal in our weakness. Gosh, and that's good news. That's the best news because it means that the place that I'm the most frail, that you're the most messed up, is the very place that you are the most likely to encounter Jesus Christ. The place that you have the least to offer is the place where he wants to come and hold you most closely. So when I feel the pull to want to look at images on the internet that are evil, Christ is there offering his hand to me. And when you feel looked out and when you feel passed over, or you feel your heart being pulled to pulsate with pride or be staggered with shame. Christ is there. When you see injustice and when you see the ugliness of this world, you are closest to seeing Christ in your sickness, in your frailty, in your foibles, in your mistakes, in your many weaknesses. This is where Christ wants to meet you, his all-sufficient grace, his almighty power, pulling us closer and closer to the day of promise. Whatever hook of hell is sitting in your flesh right now, that is the very place Christ wants to meet you. Because through you, he wants to send the demons scurrying. Through your wounds, he wants to heal our broken world. The Spirit longs to flow through you like water through a channel. And so fear not. Don't run from your weaknesses, which is what we always want to do. There's a wedding coming. Even now you can see the preparations taking place, but you have to be standing in the right place. So examine your heart. Examine our world. Examine our community and our city. Look for the places that are the most weak, the most vulnerable, and seek to build your life there with Christ. You don't have to do it all at once. But little by little, lean into the places that you feel you have the least to offer. Don't open yourself up to sin. Rather, look for the for the causes of that sin, the insecurities that lead you to sin. And move in there, expectant of an encounter with your beloved. For when we are weak, brothers and sisters, then we are strong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.